Hi, I'm Spencer Christian. I've been a broadcast journalist and weathercaster for more than 50 years. And over those years, I've met many remarkable people. Remarkable people with remarkable insight. Now, I'll be talking with them about the issues of the day and about their personal journeys. I'll even share a few of my own. So come join me after the weather, and we'll learn together. Welcome to After the Weather. I am your host, Spencer Christian, and I am really excited about my guest today. He is Paul Henderson, Director of San Francisco's Department of Police Accountability, also a nationally recognized veteran prosecutor, legal scholar, and uh, champion for social justice. Paul, good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. Well, now that we've talked about, we've thrown out the title uh, Police Accountability, yeah. uh, let me ask you about the horrible killing of Jalen Walker by the police in Akron, Ohio. I know that there is some indication that he may have shot first, but he was shot 60 times or more That's correct. and killed by these police. How can you account for something like that? Well, there are a number of ways to uh, account for it, but to unpack it, we have to understand policing. But mm -hmm. the bigger issue is we have to understand how we continue to have in this country week after week, day after day, month after month, this continuous story and narrative of lethal encounters of African-American men, mostly unarmed, with law enforcement that ends with lethality and unfortunately, these homicides or killings that have to be examined. Yeah. And so the fact that they're taking place is the biggest issue, mm -hmm. because if we are looking at policing, we have to look at and examine why do we have this institutional process that has race disparate outcomes? That's right. important. Right. And again, these are just facts and statistics that you don't get to argue about. You are five to six times more likely to encounter lethal force if you are an African-American man than anyone else in the rest of society. And yeah. that's a real challenge and a problem that's going to continue yeah. to happen in this country until we fix things across the board. And right. that's the real issue. Well, clearly that's a huge challenge yeah. and it's something we need to address and fix. It takes more than just sensitivity training and things like that. But but how do we fix that? Uh, you know, it, we hear terms being thrown around like police reform, yeah. police accountability, yes. uh, reimagining the police. Yep. Uh, you know, they sound interesting, those terms, but what do they really mean? How do we put them into practice? That's a great question. And in actuality, you have to have both. You have to have both reform and accountability. You mm -hmm. can't have the reform and come up with, proce with processes and policies if you're not going to enforce them. Right. And then the bigger issue is that policing is so decentralized that we don't have universal standards from either the federal government and in most cases, even the states, and that it really is locale, location by location, what that force or law enforcement agency is doing. Mm -hmm. So we know if we take a step back from it when we're looking at policing, in terms of reform and accountability, what best practices are, it's codified in a an academic paper, uh, the 21st Century Policing, which is exists through the Department of Justice mm -hmm. at the federal level that was created from under the Obama administration. I remember that. Yeah. Now, the problem is those edicts, those rules, those guidelines of best practices are aspirational rather than institutional, mm -hmm. meaning that people can choose to follow them. And the real problem is uh, one of the things, one of their primary principles and what you need for both reform and accountability is civilian oversight to enact reform and accountability for these law enforcement agencies. Right. We have to move away 
from departments monitoring themselves in order to get something different than the race disparate outcomes that have been built into policing for a number of historic reasons. Right. So, so speaking of the race disparate outcomes and the institutional uh, aspect of this, of, of uh, accountability and reform, yeah. what would be some of your top priorities in dealing with the San Francisco Police Department in terms of accountability? Uh, well, I think we're doing them. I mean, we have been doing a lot of the work for a number of years, and San Francisco is one of the longest traditions and one of the longest histories in terms of civilian oversight. Uh, the agency that we had here in San Francisco, the OCC, Office of Citizens Complaint, mm -hmm. was in existence since uh, 1982. I was still a prosecutor. Well, not then I wasn't, but, <laughs> <laughs> but since 1982. Yeah. Uh, and since I took over the agency about five years ago and we changed the name and expanded the jurisdiction. So now it's the Department of Police Accountability. Mm -hmm. We took out the citizen's complaint because we didn't want people to not feel welcome to come and talk to us if they weren't citizens to talk about their experiences with police. I talk about race disparities in policing, but it's really disparities that are codified in policing that go across all disenfranchised communities. So it's immigration, it's the LGBT community, uh, it's all sorts of other factors right. um, that give you those results. So in terms of the reforms that you seek to institute yeah. here in San Francisco, would you say that our police department could serve as a model for other major uh, cities around the country? Uh, for some things, but not everything. Mm -hmm. And we have initiated so many of the policies of reform that are here, and again, that are evidence-based, but that's because we have a civilian oversight agency that the city has invested in and built out to have a broad number of options and assets that a lot of other cities or a lot of other counties don't have. And right. For example, just to be very specific about it. So the Department of Police Accountability, we have a division that does policy. We have a division that does audits. We have a legal team. We have independent investigations. And those are all some of the crucial things. We also have mediation. Hmm. These are all some of the crucial things that make a difference in determining whether or not the civilian oversight agency is going to be effective, both in having access to information and a means of codifying and disseminating accountability and reform in the right way. The reason that that's unique in San Francisco and unique to California is there are over 17,000 law enforcement agencies in this country, and there are just over 200 civilian oversight agencies. And so even knowing and understanding that these are best practices to get to reform and accountability, mm -hmm. there are not a lot of tools right now to make that just happen in one fell swoop. Right. So right. instead, there's a broad gap in terms of how do we how do we translate the demands for justice into a practical plan when you're dealing with each local jurisdiction, each local state? one federal government. And this is part of the reasons why we've had so many challenges in this country with even simple steps forward, like the George Floyd Act, which still has not been passed. Right. Yeah. These are the yeah. challenges that yeah. we're all dealing with. And we're not the yeah. only agency that's doing what I believe is a good job. But I would say the cornerstone of doing a good job and doing civilian oversight is being able to have independent research and independent investigations so that the approach and monitoring the police isn't left to the agency to turn over evidence and turn over information yeah. to someone reviewing that information and having experts that understand policing to discern what's appropriate, what's not appropriate and to hold them accountable.
Well, we are certainly going to be following your progress, with yeah. police reform here in San Francisco, but I want to move on to some big national issues. Put on your, your legal analyst hat for sure. us. Sure, here we go. What in the world is going on with the Supreme Court? First, this majority, this right-wing majority, uh, takes away women's access to reproductive services, uh, but it increases access to guns. Uh, and it has indicated in its most recent decision in overturning Roe v. Wade that it will next possibly go after marriage equality and contraception. Where is this court taking us and why? So it's, it's, I'm so glad you've asked the question exactly the right way to understand, because I want to come back to the cornerstone of the basis for overruling Roe v. Wade and the cornerstone that they are trying to use as the basis, according to Clarence Thomas, to undermine those other uh, rulings as well. So I want to come back to that, but okay. let me explain first by how we got here. So right now, the court is dominated by Donald Trump's supermajority, the conservative approaches that are challenging a number of really important documents and a, a number of really important civil rights mm -hmm. that have grown through accretion over a period of time. And we've never had a civil right just given and granted in this country without challenges lots of work, protests, legal decisions yeah. that are being undermined or thrown out in one fell swoop with the approach from the supermajority, which is that all rights affirmed have to be deeply rooted in American history and tradition. And so the approach that they're saying is if it's not specifically enumerated and outlined from the constitution, then it's something that can be changed and should be changed. And with that basis, that's the legal thinking that they use to undermine Roe v. Wade to come out with that decision. But the same decision that affirmed Roe v. Wade are the same decisions that affirmed right to contraceptions and the same decisions that affirm marriage equality. That's why they are potential targets. Well, let's go back for just a minute to this uh, legal idea that certain rights have to be deeply rooted in the Constitution. Women's right to vote? not deeply rooted in the Constitution. Exactly. Uh, civil rights for Black Americans, not deeply rooted in the Constitution. In fact, we were considered at one point three-fifths of a human being. That, before, that's correct. Yeah. So how can they use the principle of some, a right being deeply rooted in the Constitution as a basis for these stunning judgments? Listen, I didn't say I agreed with it. I'm <laughs> right. just explaining to you right. why, what their justifications are yes. and how they're interpreting it because they pick and choose what it should be applied to. Mm -hmm. My fear and my concern are the statements from Clarence Thomas, who indicated that the right to contraception or access to contraception and that marriage equality are going to be issues that should be challenged as well. I have real concerns about that. And I will say specifically with Clarence Thomas, uh, one of the first uh, things that I did while I was in law school, I worked at the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and worked against the nomination of Clarence Thomas in anticipation of some of the decisions and some of his posturing about these legal issues, which I think is a concern that is the gift that keeps on giving. And the, the real issue is, just to come back to this whole conversation, yeah, is yeah. that we are now receiving rulings that seem to challenge the majority in this country and seem not to be uh, inclusive of democratic values that marginalizes further disenfranchised communities and specifically people of color. And I'd yeah. like to keep bringing in and reintroducing this issue of race because I think it's an important thing to oh, unpack. It's hugely important. And it's sure. yeah. sometimes difficult for people to talk about, which yeah. is why I like to lead with it and talk right. about race 
in a way that makes it easy for people to understand what the challenges are with these rulings and to understand what the action steps are and the possibilities of potential challenges and changes to make sure that the rights that heretofore we've grown accustomed to in this country, as they're being challenged, that we have a solution that we don't feel unempowered or marginalized by what we can do in the future and to make sure that we are focusing in the right way. If we have focuses at the national level and the federal government that we know what we're asking for and who to be asking to asking what we need. And the same thing at the state level and also at a local level, what kind of things can we be doing? But here's the thing, and this is really important. We can't fix what we don't talk about. Right. And we can't talk about what we don't know. And so the conversations like this, mm -hmm. I'm a real fan yeah, of yeah. both you and the show, <laughs> yeah. because we unpack complicated issues that people learn from listening to it, yes. to know what they can do and to have a better understanding so it doesn't feel like an assault from them about how we live our lives and how we choose to exist in this country. And that is the purpose of the show is to promote a, a deeper and better understanding. But since you mentioned Clarence Thomas as the author of that most recent opinion, uh, and he's talking about the possibility of going after marriage equality uh, from Clarence Thomas, a man who's very marriage itself would be illegal had it not been for Loving versus Virginia in 1967, which made interracial marriage legal. But you saw he didn't use that as one of the cases he that did needs not. to be challenged as right. well. And this is part of the problem. Either we're going to be fair, and if we're going to be fair, it has to be universal to everyone. To me, all of these decisions should be focused on giving us some sort of race neutrality in mm -hmm. terms of deciding things. And again, I come back to race because I think yeah. it's a really important conversation. Hugely. Especially when we're talking about the Supreme Court yeah. uh, and the decisions that they are interpreting for the nation that seem to be really out of step. But just I, I don't want to leave Clarence Thomas before right. I point out that part of the conversation and challenges that he's facing now are in part based on his relationship and his wife that he chose not to challenge the law that affirmed his ability to marry whomever he wanted to marry. Right. But he's concerned about the LGBT community and their ability to choose who they want to marry. But the bigger issue is the legal challenges surrounding him now in terms of him making this decision take us back to January of this year when the entire court ruled to release Trump's records for part of the January 6th insurrection evaluation. And he was the sole vote saying not to release those records. And then we find out that his wife was deeply involved in Indeed. shielding, protecting, advocating not to release those records. That's the red flag that's been raised by his wife, his marriage, and his role in the Supreme Court that is part of the January 6th evaluation that's going on. So I just want to tie it all together. I'm so glad you did. History is. I haven't heard any legal analyst defend his refusal to dissent, to uh, recuse himself in that case. And we all now know much about his wife's involvement in uh, in January 6th. And we'll know more. And we'll know and, more. And to the, more degree, to, yeah. it, to the degree it's tied to the decisions that he has made yeah. by the influence that she may have had, that's the issue. Now, we don't know that for sure. I don't know it for right. sure yet, but that's what the issue is that's being discussed. That's why I wanted to just unpack it a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. Because his agenda has a concern for his role in the Supreme Court. And that's before we take a step back and look at the agenda that the Supreme Court may have in this nation that 
could be inappropriate depending on how you evaluate it, but certainly without argument, it goes against majority beliefs and values in specific areas. Right. So well, that's the concern. It's it's what many Americans perceive as this court's agenda that is so frightening to people. When we think about our rights, rights that we have taken for granted. Now, just go back to Roe v. Wade for a second now. That's been overturned. Uh, and of course, you know, so many red states now have had these trigger laws that kicked into effect right away. They were ready to uh, go into effect as soon as the Supreme Court handed down this ruling. So what happens now if a woman who is who resides in Texas or Oklahoma uh, needs reproductive uh, health services and travels to California to get those services? Can she be prosecuted when she goes back to the state where she resides? I mean, it's such a subjective interpretation, but it will be held to such a strict standard in terms of what she could be prosecuted for. Because let's remember that there are three standards of accountability. There's a civil accountability, and those are the lawsuits that you see where people get monetary damages. There are criminal standards of accountability where you can be prosecuted and put in jail. And then there's administrative accountability where you can have rules, laws, uh, counties can enact restrictions in some ways. Uh, and so those are the three lanes. So when you say that someone can be prosecuted, we have to unpack what that prosecution can look like. And each standard has a different level of analysis. Yeah. I believe that when they talk about it, when I say they, I mean the states that are anti-abortion mm -hmm. that are really trying to make restrictive uh, guidelines to prevent people from having access or to having abortions. I think they're alluding to criminal standards, which is a really high standard. Yeah. That is one of the highest constitutional rights that we have is to be free and to not be incarcerated. And so there are a lot of rules there that I don't believe would stand up in court to try and prosecute someone traveling out of state to pursue an abortion. But we have to wait to see what the courts will decide. Yeah. And the real concern, given the history of what we've been talking about, is are those the kind of cases that will be selected to be in the docket for the Supreme Court to have a supermajority conservative court affirm or deny what is justified or not. That's the real issue. Yeah. But the bigger concern beyond just what the repercussions will be with accountability mm -hmm. are the fact that the decision took place in a way that is not reflective of the majority right now. That's, That's right. a real issue that I think we should be focusing on in this country is that we have this ruling that goes against the majority's slim majority approval of abortion. Because when we want to look at what the Supreme Court is doing now, I believe that the best analysis and looking at what they're doing falls along political lines yeah. and not majority lines. And that's a real concern because I think the third lane of just like a legal interpretation is what they should be using rather than an agenda set by a party not reflective of majority. That's really important. And, you know, I talked about the margin from the majority that is approval that had that approves having, um, you know, abortion rights in this country. But if you look at it along party lines, it's 31 percent of the Democrat Party wants restrictive uh, abortion rights. But 69% of the Republican Party wants abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And so when we have the supermajority voting, and in most of the things that we've seen in the past few wait, wait. weeks. Uh, wait, wait. Was that correct? 69% of Republicans want abortion rights or want to support? Restrict Oh, or want to want to. OK, they support. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did yeah. I say it the wrong no, way? No, I just yeah. want to be sure okay. we get it right. 69% yeah. of, of Republican voters 
favor abortion rights, access Correct. to abortion. Okay, right. So, but the politicians. No, who, no, no. Sixty-nine percent of the Republicans want restrictive. Oh, what, abortion okay. Rights. There we go. Right. Now we exactly. get it straight. Okay. That's why I said Republicans want restrictive. Yeah, abortion. It's the rights. highest correlation in yeah. terms of evaluating the court's decision as looking at political parties beyond just race and beyond just simple majorities. Yeah. I was confused. And, yeah, yeah sorry, I probably <laughs> misstated it, but the the numbers matter, which is yeah. why I love statistics. Yeah. I love these. Pew and Harvard research studies and polls that are objective about what the parties are saying and the elected officials are saying versus what the Supreme Court is doing. Right. I think that's relevant and the conversation to be had with things like abortion and also like with the whole gun control stuff. Yes. It's like, you know, the highest majority uh, of folks uh, coalesced for gun control. This, I think, is super interesting. Yeah. African-Americans, African-Americans. So if you poll them and you look at the numbers for gun control, it's 75% of African-Americans, the highest recognized group, uh, want gun control. Right. Followed secondly by Asian-Americans, 72%, followed closely by 65% of the Latinx community. Uh, and on the opposite side of that, the folks that don't want gun control or less gun control are white adults. Right. And that's 45 percent. But the rulings that we're getting from the Supreme Court affirming those rights or those opportunities seems to be counterintuitive to the majority of folks in this country. And that's why the Supreme Court rulings are important. And that's why we have to understand it as to what's happening to us every day. Well, we're clearly, as a nation, moving in a direction um, where we'll see blue states uh, making abortion access uh, more available, uh, and we'll see blue states passing laws that restrict uh, gun ownership to some extent, uh, background checks, that sort of thing, age limits, the type of weapons you get. And and yet red states will go in the opposite direction. So the the division in our country right now, the divisions, I should say, are just getting deeper and deeper and sharper and sharper. And I'm just wondering how that's all going to play out legally when people travel from one one red state to a blue state uh, for rights they don't have in their in their home states, or when people travel from a blue state to a red state to buy these dangerous weapons and bring them back and commit atrocities. As we've seen. Yeah. You're not making these scenarios up. Right. This is what we've seen. This is happening now. And the the problem is, and you see the cyclical problem in having rulings like this, where states are determining things that are in conflict and the federal evaluation from the Supreme Court aren't necessarily affirming things or making things easier in terms of a universal approach that's going to reflect the majority. And so to that point exactly, the real challenge comes from red states and blue states in conflict about interpreting these laws and how those laws get interpreted. Those feuds or those challenges get resolved are with this Supreme Court and this Supreme Court apparently, or at least from the cases that we've been talking about, have been making decisions along party lines rather than uniformity of the law or an outlook reflective of majority interest. That's exactly the problem. And so to the degree California is doing something very different from Texas, if and when there's a conflict, those conflicts are elevated to the Supreme Court to interpret, and that those decisions may marginalize progressive states or may marginalize democratic states is the issue in terms that where rights 
that heretofore we've grown to rely upon are being rolled back or eliminated completely, as we've seen from this past week. And, And like I said, we've been talking about abortion and we've been talking about gun control, but there is a lot in the past two weeks that has been undermined or challenged from this current court uh, for things that we've relied upon for decades now. Well, speaking of the last two weeks, not only have we gotten some stunning uh, rulings from the Supreme Court um, and and the reverberations that followed, but there's been some stunning testimony in the January 6th committee hearings. And I want to have you now put on your your legal analyst hat again uh, and talk about whether what we're learning from these recent hearings, especially from the testimony from uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, should lead to or will lead to a criminal uh, charges being brought against Donald Trump and those in his inner circle. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, the circle is uh, narrowing or the noose is tightening, however you want <laughs> right. to look at it in terms of the evidence that is coming out. Uh, but the real issue is what the action steps will be. And I think before you just say universally what they will be, we have to understand that there are different approaches at the federal level, at the state level and at the local level. Yeah. And this situation uh, impacts all three of those areas. But again, understanding what happened and understanding the information that's coming out of these hearings and understanding the use of the information that comes out of those hearings, I think is going to be interesting because it falling along and looking again at the party lines, the majority of Republicans are approaching the January 6th um, hearings themselves. Uh, that they, they didn't watch it. They didn't see it. They don't want to talk about it. They are not participating in it. And that's a real concern because at the core, the January 6th insurrection reflects a move to unempower the majority, to challenge voting rights. And this is before we unpack the implications of race here, but those are really important values that are the cornerstone of democracy. And so it's essentially left Democrats for the most part Mm -hmm. to determine what the reaction will be. And I think that's part of why we're seeing so many challenges to the federal government now from folks that are concerned about either give us a plan to address it Mm -hmm. or tell us who to blame in terms of where we're going to go for it. And as we codify that blame with individual actors and coordinators, where does that blame play out beyond just the prosecution of the individuals who are being Uh, charged with offenses, the folks that coordinated, the conspirators, uh, let's say, that put it together or supported this work, what the implications will be for them. And I think that those questions go all the way to the top uh, to Donald Trump in terms of determining what his role was in the January 6th insurrection and what the repercussions can be. Because at the core of that, is the focus and the approach of what we commonly call the big lie of yes. him challenging yeah. the election and coming up with a plan. And that's the issue. Did he come up with a plan? Did he execute a plan to challenge the election? And the information from the January 6 hearings is what is affirming yeah. much of the actions that he took and the people around him took. That's the real issue. Right. Where it's leading to, I believe, the strongest cases and the strongest evaluation using the evidence from the January 6th election are some of the federal approaches in Georgia, in the jurisdiction of Georgia, because that's where I think we'll see the strongest cases. And those are the cases that I'm watching. That's where I was going next with my next question, because as a prosecutor, I wondered if you see uh, a, a 
case being built in Georgia that that you would take on as a prosecutor yeah. to go after Donald Trump? Well, well here's the thing with uh, prosecutions as uh, for criminal charges. There's always this element of scienter or mental approach or active engagement for understanding and taking specific actions. And I think we it doesn't have to be specific. You don't have to say I'm going to rob a bank and I know what I'm doing. You can infer it, but you have to have this evidence to prove these elements typically in criminal kind of charges. Mm -hmm. And in this case, where I think we see the testimony, behavior and evidence from folks uh, the strongest indication that we have in terms of Donald Trump uh, actions and the people around him are his actions with the state elected uh, Brad Raffensperger. Yes. Uh, yeah. And him yeah. indicating very clearly in the recording that they needed to find 11,780 votes to affirm a win in Georgia, which is counterintuitive to the actual valid election. Right. And so right. Right. that action in and of itself is going to be the cornerstone of what I would consider to be one of the strongest cases based on the evidence that I've seen or heard, both from the hearings and watching some of the other cases and challenges that we've had with the former president. Right. So that's that's the case that I would be looking for. And being sucked into that case would be the people around and in the administration that may have played uh, affirmative roles or direct roles right. in overcoming or challenging valid elections. And it, it's really, really important in this country right. that if and when we have a valid election, as we did, mm -hmm. that the folks that challenge it in spite of evidence, in spite of knowledge, affirmation, belief that this is valid, those folks need to be held accountable and understanding what that accountability looks like is what's being left to the courts right now. So, but, but so many of us who are watching these hearings and seeing all this evidence pile up are wondering, will anyone be held accountable? You know, if Even if it's not Donald Trump, yeah. you know, will people like Rudy Giuliani or Mark Meadows or Pat Cipollone or any of those other people in that inner circle, circle be held accountable for this or, or even someone like Lindsey Graham, for yes, example, exactly. who participated in, in the pressure tactics against the, uh, the officials in the state of Georgia. You know, I'd love to read the tea leaves and give you a definitive answer, but I don't know. I yeah. mean, you know, I don't know um, how those folks will be charged, if they will be charged, um, and what we are going to do as a nation at those different levels of accountability, local, state, and federal, yeah. in terms of coming up with a solution, I will say, all roads lead back to even if and when there are challenges and if and when there are, uh, you know, prosecutions and verdicts in those cases, all of these things always get appealed no matter what. That's typical. Yeah. My real concern is the end game of what happens when and if these courts get to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Will they be undone and how will they be reviewed by this court in particular? specifically with yeah. folks like Clarence Thomas on this court, yeah. given the challenges that have been unearthed about his behavior, what his approach will be right. in the cases that sprung out of documents that needed to be turned over, that sprung out of the challenges from the January 6th insurrection that his wife may have played a role in. Again, it just it, real issues and concerns for us yeah. to understand that are hard to navigate, I think, for a lay person about what do we do? How do we yeah. move forward? And how can we how, how do we exist or advocate for what we believe to be right, regardless of what the we is determined and 
regardless of what the rights are that we're focusing on. I never thought I'd find myself saying poor John Roberts, but, yeah. <laughs> but in, the, in the current makeup yeah. of this court, poor John Roberts is powerless as the chief justice, because not only do you have Thomas and Alito who were already there before the three Trump appointees, but now with the three Trump appointees, Thomas and Alito form a majority. That, and even if John Roberts goes with the quote, liberals. Correct. They're in a minority. Yes, that, that, that is correct. And, and most of the rulings that we're seeing coming out of the Supreme Court in the past few weeks, and they had a very important docket, uh, are coming out at a 6-3 supermajority. That's right. That is, you know, I, I, I think it's it, it's a cause for alarm in the future about what the next steps can be and what's likely to come out of the Supreme Court that is reinterpreting what rights are as we know them in this country and what privileges we are affording to the definition of democracy itself. Yeah. That's Paul, a real issue. Paul, why are you and I such nerds about the law? I mean, we I, we care. Clearly, we both passionately care about justice. We're we're, we're two black men. Yes. You know? and, yeah. uh, and I grew up, uh, I'm a generation older than you. I grew up uh, under Jim Crow segregation in the South. Um, civil rights bill was signed into law in 1964 by President Johnson. The Voting Rights Act signed into law in 1965. I was a senior in high school and freshman in college when those two things occurred. It wasn't until after 1967, 68, 69 that the barriers actually began to come down and the signs came down that said, you know, whites only, whites only. Um, as a kid, I, I followed Supreme Court rulings and all federal court rulings because my the, the very exercise of my simple everyday rights depended on the next court ruling. Yes. So that's why I care so much about it. But you're a younger man. I, I'm I'm not that much younger. <laughs> and, and and it's still the repercussions of that. Uh, you know, decisions have consequences. Yeah. Voting and elections have consequences. And so I'm, you know, I'm a fourth generation San Franciscan and I grew up here in the Bayview and constantly felt that things happened to my community rather than for my community. So I was constantly intellectually curious as to why some parks were better than others. Yeah. Some streets were cleaner than others. Some neighborhoods didn't seem to have the same experiences that I experienced growing up. And my key to understanding that was education. Yeah. My questions were not answered just with my education from school, which is why I went to law school in the first place. And to understand how the laws work to institutionalize disparate treatments and disparate outcomes for different individuals, different neighborhoods, different communities, seemed to be at the very core of what drove me to try and work in an area that undid many of those institutional disparities that drove me to fight, advocate, and use the talent, skills, education, and training that I had to try and uncover or reveal what those problems were and to figure out plans or options for advocacy so that broader, more inclusive communities could work collectively towards solutions. That's that's how we got here. And, what, and what's so amazing is that the, the disparate treatment of the different communities um, didn't end when the when the visible barriers came down. Anyway, I grew up going into you know a, a department store and there was a shiny clean water fountain that said whites only. Yes. And then a, a, uh, a, a rusty, dirty, not well-maintained water fountain that said colored. Yeah. Same thing with the restrooms, right? All right, so then once those signs came down that segregated the races, I could drink out of the, the shiny water fountain. I could go to the clean bathroom, but still my community was not 
maintained or uh, given any attention or, or well-funded as the other communities were. And now that you have taken those fountains down, Spencer, I will tell you that those some of those disparities still exist, Yeah. even in a city like San Francisco. And we are not unique in terms of the disparities that exist economically mm-hmm. for communities of color to this day. You don't have to guess as to whether or not those disparities made a difference on communities and on individuals, because you can look at everything from policing to education to housing to economy to know and understand that there are entire groups of people, again, bringing it back to race, Mm -hmm. that exist. It's almost like a tale of two cities when you look at most locations and you see and understand that communities of color are going to have less access. They're going to have less wealth. They're going to have less leadership, less jobs, less opportunities than other people. And we have to look at those root causes to look at redlining. We have to look at the root causes to look at legal decisions. We have to look at the root causes like disparities in education to see why are we here? But more importantly, what can we do about it? How can we move forward that empowers communities because we can't continue to exist and thrive as a nation if we are throwing away entire populations of resources that we could be using if we're working collaboratively and collectively to address problems and thrive as a as a nation. And, a and what we're talking about now is fact, and it's the result of yeah. a history of treating different communities differently. And yet there are states that would not want that in their textbooks or discussed in a social studies classroom or in a history class. Uh, Not California, not New York, not Massachusetts, but Florida, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina. Um, So you talked, you made a reference earlier to Tale of Two Cities. It's like a Tale of Two Countries right now. Correct. Yeah. And I think those disparities are growing wider and wider along political lines. Yes. Rather than race evaluations, rather than neutral Uh, goals and rather than an inclusive agenda that could unify this country. And I I, I feel like these decisions that we're talking about in the Supreme Court are defining what the separations are and what the disconnect is, again, from the majority. And that's why I have such a concern, because the, the disconnect from the majority seems counterintuitive to the cornerstone of how heretofore we've defined democracy in terms of what was aspirational and what we tried to move towards. And we seem to be taking steps outside of those definitions that affirm a political interpretation, a party interpretation. And that is something that's totally independent of what I believe the rest of the country wants. Well, I don't have to believe it. We have the statistics and the polls to prove some of those things. And, And that's the real concern. Well, I, I applaud you for caring so much about your city and, and the community that uh, the smaller community in which you grew up, that you are now committed to working for the betterment of this city and the inclusion of communities like the one in which you grew up uh, to lift them up to um, a higher standard. I mean, I, I try. I mean, I. I feel real self-righteous on my soapbox. So like, <laughs> listen to me, let me tell you what's wrong. And let me tell you what we can do to fix it. Yes. And I, I think that that's really important and for, because, you know, so few people have access to the education that I've been privileged to acquire and yeah. know and understand these things. And, and again, it's the conversations like this that elevate, I think, uh, a layperson 
uh, interpretation or opinion about what's going on that I think is really important. And I will say, I don't know that I would understand things at the level that I understand it without the positions that I've had in the past, without this specific degree of research analysis and communication that I got from going to law school. And, and let's just talk about that because oh, yeah. in, in terms of even understanding less than 1% of everyone in the entire nation has an advanced degree, that's a big deal. And this is before we start unpacking race, right? Because we already know that there is a 64% shutout rate for African-Americans, black and brown communities going into higher education or having secondary degree versus the 72% acceptance rate for the white majority into a lot of these programs and studies, it, it's, I think it's, there's a burden or not a burden, there's a responsibility or an obligation for folks, specifically folks of color and the LGBT community, disenfranchised communities, however you define them, that empowered with the education, empowered with the analysis, empowered with the facts, of how this nation works and how it's being under attack with democracy to share that information and have conversations. And we have to talk about it. I tell people all the time, you, you can do simple things as following thought leaders that you think have important things to say and posting that kind of information on your social media. We can't accept our friends, neighbors, peers to value things more than us if we are silent about what we value and what we want. We have to say these things and you can say them in so many different ways. Not everyone gets invited to meet you and talk to you about these important well, not things. every host gets to talk to you about well, these things. You know, I'm always talking. It's, uh, I got a lot to say about things. Well, I know you have a lot to say and and, and it's important that we listen to and, and hear what you have to say. And I want you to come back on this podcast again. Oh, I'd love to. This has been so engaging, enlightening and enjoyable. Uh, Paul Henderson, uh, a remarkable guy. And uh, you, you now know that when you come on after the weather, uh, the starting point may lead you to many other points you never imagined would happen. Even I, as a forecaster, can't tell you where, yes, exactly. where, right. where our conversation is going sometimes. Forecasting's hard. But it always goes in an interesting and, and um, stimulating direction. So, Paul Henderson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank uh, you so much for having me. It's been please, a real pleasure. Please come back. I will. I will. Thank you. After the Weather is a product of ABC7. Be sure to subscribe. And if you liked our program, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.